How are you guys doing out there? All right, great to hear it. I wanted to uh, welcome Derek and Kayla Sanderlin from San Jose, San Jose, members in mission up there working with servant partners, and so get a chance to say hi to them today. Uh, turn with me to Romans chapter 8. Before we get into our text, I just want to give you a heads up on what's going to be happening this summer. On Friday, we did this thing here, and so this group of people, including myself, is heading out to Malawi. And so this is the only Sunday, uh, we're there three weeks, and then I'm taking another week off, so this is the only Sunday I'm preaching in July. Boo hit. No, come on. All right, just kidding. But, but, but God is awesome. He works all things together for good. Next week, uh, our uh, missionary and mobilizer with OMF, Steve Weems, will be here. Then, uh, then, then Anthony's going to be preaching. Then Chad. And then uh, on June 29th, uh, crew missionary is our missionary month. Jim Wonder is going to be here, coming all the way from Florida, just to bring the Word of God to you. So July will be awesome. Then in August... We'll have our missions conference on the 12th, I mean the Sunday, the conference is the 10th to the 12th, but the Sunday will be the 12th, and our guest speaker will be Dan Leatherwood, coming all the way from Spain to speak to you, exciting. And on the other three Sundays of August, I will finish uh, chapter 8 of Romans, Lord willing. And that takes us to September. Now, as many of you know, over the summer, the elders and the staff and other church leaders have been taking time to, to pray and to fast for some renewal in our personal lives, in the lives of the church, for some direction in our personal lives and the lives of the church. And so I'd ask you to just join me and join us in that. I'd especially ask that you would pray uh, with me for renewal and direction in, in the Sunday morning service been thinking about it, and, and right now I'm a little bit torn uh, when September comes between continuing through the book of Romans, don't worry, we'll finish it someday, and taking a break, not a long one, uh, uh, to, to look specifically at what God is calling us to do and to be as a church here in Riverside, more of a, a topical sort of thing about us as a church. So I need your prayers. I don't, I don't, right now I don't know what God has in store for us. Maybe you could pray the promise in Proverbs 3, 5 through 6, I find that uh, praying Scripture is always the best way to pray for me, because I know I'm praying according to God's will. Pray that, that we will trust in the Lord with all our heart, and, and that we won't lean on to our own understanding. In all our ways, we'd acknowledge Him, that He will make our paths straight. This is a great promise of God's guidance for those who will trust in Him. Now, God's Word is filled with promises. And today we're going to look at maybe one of the most well-known promises in all of Scripture. In Romans chapter 28, Romans has no, does not have 28 chapters. I'm I'm having trouble. That's Kim King right there. Okay. In Romans chapter 8, verse 28 through 30, the Apostle Paul writes, and we know that for those who love God, All things work together for good. So that's the core of the promise we'll be looking at today, but we're not going to forget what surrounds it. For those who are called according to His purpose, for those who He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. 
And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. I mean, really, what a, what a promise. What an amazing promise. All things work together for good. And just to be clear, from the very start, that word all in the Greek means all. No exceptions. We'll talk about that. And that word good in the Greek means good. It means pleasant and agreeable and joyful and happy and excellent. It's all good. And so the Apostle Paul, inspired by the Spirit of God, is promising that everything you experience in this life will work together for your good. Really? Do you believe that? That all things... All of life's circumstances work together for good. I mean, I can see how the good things in my life work together for good. That makes sense. But, but what about the bad things? The quote-unquote bad things, the car troubles and the job troubles and the family issues and a disease and death and, and sin? Are those included in the all things that work together for good? I think we'll find the answer is Yes. And it's my prayer as we examine this promise and what surrounds it, that God will help us understand and believe and allow the truth of this promise to change the way we view, to change the way we react to the difficulties, to the bad circumstances of life. And so the first thing I want us to see is the promise in context, the promise in context. Often we take a verse or verses, and this is a key example here, uh, or even part of verses, and isolate them from the context, from all that has gone before, for all, from all that comes after. And when we do that, we, we can miss, and in fact, we do miss often what God is really trying to teach us. We can misinterpret. We can misuse His Word. We need to understand the promise that all things work together for good is in a context, And if we back up to verse 18, which we were looking at two weeks ago, the context becomes clear. In Romans 18 through 25, the context is suffering. Paul is giving us hope. He's giving, he's writing to the church. He's giving us hope in our present time of suffering. In verse 18, he states his conviction that the suffering of this present time are not worthy to be picked to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed in us, to us. He then goes on to remind us that suffering is to be expected in this fallen world. That suffering in this life is a result of God's judgment on human sin. And that, and that, and that judgment impacts everything. It impacts creation itself. Therefore, we currently live, we reside in a corrupt and a dying world of suffering. But Paul doesn't stop there. He says, but that's not the final destination. He says, for those who are in Christ, who've trusted in Christ, we have hope. And that hope is in our future glory. That hope isn't here. That hope is in our future glory. Our eternal inheritance in the presence of God. Suffering does not compare to the future eternal glory that God has prepared for those who are in Christ Jesus. So in the midst of our suffering, we're given hope. And then in verses 25 and 26, Paul goes on to say, we not only have hope in suffering, but we have help in our weakness. 
He says, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we don't don't know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And He who searches hearts knows what is in the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. In our weakness, the Spirit helps. When we don't know how, when we don't know what to pray, when we're praying what we ought not pray, the Spirit intercedes us for us according to the will of God. So as we approach the promise, all things work together for good, know that we do so in the context of suffering, the context of weakness. In this life, we will experience suffering. We will experience weakness. And Paul has given us hope in suffering by looking to our future glory. He's giving us help in our weakness, by looking to the Spirit of God. And now he adds more hope and more help in the context of our suffering and weakness by promising us that all things work together for good. Know this. When you are experiencing difficulty, suffering, weakness in this life, God's Word is there to give you hope to give you help by promising you that all things, even and especially your present suffering, your weakness, work together for good. So we have the context. Now we turn to the condition. The promise is conditional. In the ESV, that's the the, uh, translation that I use, for preaching, the condition is seen both before and after the promise. And we know that for those who love God, number one, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose, number two. Or as the NASB translates it, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. I, I think the NSB makes, makes it clear, makes one important thing clear. That it's God that causes all things to work together for good. It's not random. It's not chance. It's God Himself. It's the sovereign God that causes all things to work together for good. But, but this truth does not apply to everyone. The promise is conditional. It's made only to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. These are two ways of describing the same uh, person or the same group of people. Uh, Christians, the, the people Paul is writing this to. Both, but both descriptions are important. In the Bible, those who love God usually refers to people who've, who've made a commitment to live for God. A commitment to obey and serve God in recognition and appreciation for who He is and what He's done in their lives. In John 14, 16, Jesus says, Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. This doesn't mean that keeping God's commandments equals love for God. You can be obedient based on a lot of reasons. But it means that those who love God will show that love by keeping His commandments. True obedience to God flows from a heart of love for God. That's why we're commanded... To love God with everything we have, with our heart, with our soul, with our mind, and with our strength, with everything, with our mind, with our will, with our emotions, we should love God. To those who love God, those who love God are those who fully set their hearts on God. 
seeking to obey, seeking to please Him in all that they do. So that's the first sort of description of those. And the only reason that they can do that, the only reason that they can love God is because they were called according to His purpose. You can only love God because God calls you into a loving relationship with Him. Now, anyone who's ever heard the Gospel has in one sense been called, right? If, you, if, you, if you're here today, and, and most of you are, then when I say that, that through the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ on the cross, God offers you forgiveness and salvation and, and a new and eternal life, and that all you need do is give yourself to Him. Love and trust Him. Put your faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. If you, if you heard those words, then in one sense, you've been called. You've been called into a relationship with God. But here Paul is referring to those who've responded to that call. Who've responded according to God's purpose. They've responded to the message of the Gospel, to God's call on their lives. They've put their faith in Christ. They've been brought by Christ, through Christ, into relationship with God. So the promise is conditional. The condition is loving God, responding to the call that God has placed on your life. And those who meet this condition, we call Christians. Therefore, for Christians, all life circumstances, all things work for good. That's the the promise. But what about non-Christians? I would be remiss if I, if I didn't point out that this verse implies what it implies for those who don't meet the conditions, those who aren't followers of Christ, for those who don't love God, who, who haven't responded to the call. Then all things do not work together for good. Or to take it a step further, I think, I think it's, it's valid to say, for the Christian, all things, the good, the bad, the ugly in life work together for good. That's true. That's here. But I think we can also say for the non-Christian, both the good and the bad things in life work together for bad. Is that true? You believe that? Now we understand that the bad things work for bad because God isn't working them for good. That in the life of a non-Christian, God is not working. uh, This promise does not apply. But what about the good things? How can I say that they're working for bad? For example, how can getting a raise at work, which happens to all kinds of people, a good thing be bad for anyone? Well, because Paul has already said earlier in Romans, in Romans 1.24, if you remember that far back, Paul says about those who've rejected God, those who do not love God, those who are living in rebellion against God, that God gave them up in the lust, uh, the sinful desires of their hearts, to impurity, to sin, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Paul's saying that God punishes those who reject Him by letting them have the desires of their heart, of their sinful hearts. He lets them have what they want. He lets them have the things they believe, that they would say, that's a good thing, I want that. But those things become bad. Because those who reject God are, are, are living in an illusion. An illusion that they are self-made people. 
in control of their own lives. They don't believe in a, a sovereign God. And in that state, when, when, when you experience the good things in life, what happens? Does it cause you to turn from your sin and, and turn to trusting God? No. It only re- reinforces this illusion and, and makes this, their sins of pride and self-confidence, self-centeredness grow and, and take over. If an unbeliever, therefore, uh, for them experiences good circumstances, they only serve to, to harden their hearts to their need for a loving God. Getting this raise means I'm doing good. means I've been recognized. I'm, I'm all that. But God in His sovereignty, we need to know this. He's sovereign in causing all things to work together for good for us, and He's sovereign in His persistent call on the lives of those who aren't yet trusting in Him. In His sovereignty, in His love, and in His mercy, He can break through even the most prideful heart. If you're here today, and you know that you don't meet these conditions, the conditions of this promise, you know you don't love God. You may say you do, but you know in your heart you don't love God. You know you haven't truly responded to His call on your life. You're not living according to His purpose. Maybe you've even experienced the fact that the things you thought were good, the things you were striving for, when you got them, they just turned bitter, turned bad. They've not brought you true happiness, but instead have left you feeling empty and alone then I would exhort you to consider again responding to the call God is making on you right now. Even now, repent of your rejection of Him. Turn to Him. Trust in Him. Trust in in Jesus Christ, in His death on the cross for you, for the forgiveness of your sins, for the salvation of your soul. Pray that God would give you love for Him. You know, you can't just generate it yourself. Even our love for God is a, is a gift of God. And in love for God, and all He's done for you through Jesus Christ, give your life to Him in service and in obedience. Then you can begin to experience the, the help and the hope provided by the promise. Having the uh, confidence that all circumstances in your life, God can cause, God does cause all things to work together for your good. And and that brings us to our third point. The promise gives confidence in all circumstances. If you meet the condition, then God's Word promises that all things work together for good. And what that means is, is that you can now face all the circumstances of life with confidence. Not self confidence but confidence in God because it's God, not you, not me, that's causing all things to work together for good. Now, if you take hold of this promise, if you trust God and believe this, this promise, if you, if you, I, I remember when I was uh, first learning to study the Bible, people taught us to look for certain things when you're reading. A, a command to obey was one, a promise to claim. If you would claim this promise, and, and I'm not a name it and claim it, person at all, unless God's Word says it. If there's a promise in God's Word, you can claim it. So if you claim this promise, then you can face the most difficult circumstances, suffering and weakness with confidence. Think about it. This world is not a a nice place. It's not a good place. It's filled with tragedy. It's filled with sorrow. Everyone is not basically good. 
contrary to popular opinion and reality. And this causes many people to be disillusioned. It causes people to be cynical. This causes some people to even opt out. I'm done. I don't want to be here anymore. I'm going to take my own life. But if you believe that God is causing all things to work together for good, then you'll naturally have a a different attitude about uh, especially the difficulties of life. When you experience minor inconveniences, bad drivers on the road, to major tragedies, death of those you love, or anything in between, you can know that God is at work. That He sees your suffering and is causing it to work ultimately for your good. And when you truly believe this, it will affect how you live and how you react when things go wrong. Because we can be confident that things haven't gone wrong at all. If God works in all things, it means His plan includes the difficult, the quote-unquote wrong things in this life. We can be confident that our lives aren't subject to random chance or to fate. Because our lives are subject, they're under the control of the sovereign will of God. This should cause us, Christian, above all people, to rejoice in all circumstances. I mean, we're commanded to do that, aren't we? Uh, that, it, it makes sense in this context because God's working all circumstances for your good. Uh, to not be anxious, to not be worried or afraid when, when life takes an unexpected or difficult turn. Whether we call something good or bad in our life, we can have confidence that God is using it, the good, the bad, the, the ugly for our good. And what that means is that whatever bad thing is happening in our life is for our good. And it also means that whatever good thing that's not happening in our life is also for our own good. I'd like to quote uh, two songwriters here. My favorite country songwriter, Garth Brooks, with that amazing song, I thank God for unanswered prayer, right? He gets it, not, not completely, because, uh, because the title should be, uh, no, let me, the, the line is, sometimes I thank God for unanswered prayer. The context is seeing a woman that he was praying to be his wife, and she wasn't all that anymore, uh, if you care. But, the, but, the, but, the, but the, the line should be, all times I thank God for unanswered prayer. When we're praying for something, I mean, this should be how we pray, Right? God, this is what I want. This is what I believe is best for me. But hey, if I don't get it, I know that you have something else better, that you're doing something different. I all times, I thank God for, unan- well, and is it unanswered or is God just saying no? You know, maybe it's answered and it's, and it's no. So, so that's Garth Brooks. But maybe we should move on to a, a, a more theologically sound guy. Quote, maybe my favorite hymn writer, uh, John Newton He said, everything is needful that he sends. Nothing can be needful that he withholds. God gives us exactly what we need when we need it. If we think we require good things, uh, some good things that God has withheld from us, in reality, we don't need it. It's not the best thing for us. And if we feel our life has been ruined by some bad thing, in reality, that bad thing is playing some important role in our lives. 
It's teaching us something. It's humbling us. It's changing us in some way. You know, I was thinking about, uh, you know, I'd really like to share an example of this from my own life, you know. But it was like, oh, I can't share that. I can't share that. Okay. There was a lot of examples, and I just didn't feel it was important. Some of them involved other people and things. But, but I did decide, I finally said, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just be real with you guys and just tell you I'm struggling. The, one of the things that I'm considering bad is just uh, our church growth. You know, we're, we're losing more people than we're gaining. People are moving away, and it's discouraging to me. And I think about it a lot. And is that a bad thing? I think God has been using it in my life. I can look back. I wasn't thinking about this at the time until I started studying this passage, how God is using that quote-unquote bad thing in a lot of ways in my life. And I think others here, to call me to himself, to call me to dependence on him, to call us as a church to fast and pray for direction, to call us for, to renewal and humility before him. And so even that, that one thing in my life, uh, which I for a long time was, was discouraged and thinking bad, God is bringing me out of that through, through his word. Romans 8.28 teaches us to look at life's troubles as part of God's loving purpose. And know this, the promise that God causes all things to work together for good extends even to our own uh, backsliding, to our own sin. All really means all. Therefore, we can't, we can't even ruin God's plans and purposes for our lives. Now, sin is always bad, always a terrible thing, and always, uh, we, we always live to regret its painful consequences in our lives. But God is so great, this is amazing about God. Nobody else can do this, only God. God is so great that He can weave even our sins into, his, into our ultimate good. I'm not giving you any examples of that for my life, but there are plenty. He can use even our sins, our failures, our weakness to humble us and teach us the right view of ourselves and a greater appreciation for Christ as we sin and we realize, wow, I did it again. And God's going to forgive me again. The, 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 the love for Christ grows. To remind us that we are dependent on Him. Not only for our salvation, but for our, our sanctification, for our Christian life. Now let me clear, be clear. This does not excuse our sin. I'm not carte blanche. Just because God can use something doesn't mean we should do it. But it does cause us to look for how God is working through our sin and the sin of others. That's what Joseph did. His brothers, in an act of great sinfulness, sold him into slavery. But Joseph, even, even before Paul wrote it, he knew that God causes all things, every terrible sin of his brothers even, to work together for good. And in Genesis 50-20, Joseph says to his brothers, As for you, you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Oh, that we might be like Joseph, confident that God is at work for our good. Even during the worst circumstances of our, our lives, Paul understood, the, Paul understood this firsthand. In 2 Corinthians twelve seventeen, he writes, so to, so to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. 
Now, you'd have to say that a, a thorn in the flesh, literal or, or figurative, uh, a messenger of Satan harassing you is a bad thing. But this bad thing was used in Paul's life for good. Apparently, Paul had a propensity to be full of himself. Can anyone relate to that? And the fact that Paul had, had received great revelations from God. Some say Paul was caught up into the third heaven and he saw things that he, he couldn't even describe. And so when that happens to somebody, you know, it's hard not to be uh, puffed up, right? It's hard to keep humble. So to keep him from being conceited, God caused the bad thing, the thorn in the flesh, the harassing messenger of Satan to work for good. To keep him from conceit and, and all the terrible things that come along with that. It's so important for us to understand this because we can think that all things working together for good means God will take any bad circumstance in your life and change it into something good. Like, like, like if you have a flat tire on the road, bad. God is obligated to make something good happen. Like when you pull over to change the tire and you bend down, oh, $100 on the ground. Right? That's God turning the bad into good. But that's not the promise. Notice that in Paul's life, God did not change his bad circumstance to something good. He used the bad circumstance for something good. God is less concerned with changing our bad circumstances into good and more concerned with changing our bad heart into good. That's what we find when we look at at the verses following the promise. In verses 29 and 30, Paul describes what it looks like when God causes all things to work together for good. This is more of the, the context of this promise. He tells us what the, what the good that God is causing all things to work together for. It's not a random thing. It's not $100 on the side of the road. What it is, what we find is the promise is for our confirmation. For those, verse 29, for those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. Verse 29 begins with the word for, and as we've talked about throughout our study of Romans, whenever it comes up, this shows the close connection between the verse that has gone before, verse 28. Verses 29 and 30 are Paul's explanation of what God's purposes, what God's good purposes, the good things God is working actually are or is, what God is working out in all the circumstances of our lives. The promise of verse 28 is not meant to tell us that when we have troubles, they'll just work out in some general abstract way. They'll, God will change them. That some random good things will start happening to you. Instead, Paul means that God, through His sovereign foreknowledge, has predestined everything that happens to us to work toward a specific good goal. And that goal is... To be, that we would be conformed to the image of His Son. In Romans 8.28, when Paul says all things work together for good, the good, he means, is becoming and ultimately being like Jesus Christ. God is working in our lives through all things, good and bad circumstances, to make us more loving and to make us more noble and to make us more humble and honest and wise and good and joyful and kind, and so on and so forth. God is making us to be like Jesus. 
Some people read verse 28 as a teaching that God gives more good things or or different kinds of circumstances to Christians over non-Christians. But Paul is not saying that. Paul is not promising Christians an easier, more comfortable life. Let me say that again. Paul is not, never has, never will promise Christians an easier or more comfortable life. So when bad things happen to you and you say, God, why me? I trust in you. You're, you're on the whole wrong page. That's not how it works. That's what he talked about. We talked about two weeks where we live in a corrupt and, and world based. Suffering is normal. It's the way of life. He's not saying that Christians will have a, a higher percentage of, of pleasant over unpleasant circumstances than unbelievers. Rather, Paul says that all things, the same basic range of good and bad things that happen to all people who live in a sinful, fallen world, plus we have a bonus the suffering that comes from following Christ. There's extra suffering you get if you follow Christ. If you proclaim the name of Christ. If you follow the suffering King, you will suffer as He suffered, God says. So you got the regular suffering, plus you got the suffering as a follower of Christ. And all of these things are used by God in our hearts so we're taught, so we're humbled, so we're refined into the likeness of Jesus Christ. Is there anything better than that? If you're saying, bummer, I thought it meant I got more money than my non-Christian neighbor, you're on the wrong page. There is nothing better in this life and the life to come than to be like Jesus. God's good purpose for you and for me is that we will be conformed to the image of His Son in order that we might be the firstborn among many, excuse me, that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. Think about the awesomeness of this statement that God is conforming you. God has a master design or a form, and that master design, he's got a, he's got a blueprint, let's call it, and the blueprint is his son. And now every circumstance, every circumstance in your life is designed to shape and to polish, to melt and to, to, to sandpaper and to smooth and to sculpt and to frame to cast and contour us into this master design. I don't think I'm alone in saying, if I look back at my life, oftentimes in the midst of it, I can't see it, but if I look back at my life, the good things and the bad things, it's definitely the quote-unquote bad things. The struggles, the, the marital issues, the kid issues, All those things. It's at those times when God is shaping, when God is molding, when God is, is, is causing these difficult things. He's causing me to grow into relationship with Him. And see, that is the difference. Here's how you know if you're a Christian or not. Well, here's at least one way. When the difficulties come, where do you go? Because these same difficulties, the same circumstances in one person's life who claims to be a Christian will cause them to say, if this is what it's all about, I don't want anymore. Whereas in the, in the one who's truly trusting in Christ will say, okay, this is what God is using in my life to conform me into the image of Jesus Christ. I might not like it, but I know it's for my good, my ultimate good. God is pouring us into the mold of Christ's perfection. 
The, the idea of conform does not mean uh, that you'll be a superficial likeness, that you'll be uh, like, a, like a, a photograph, sort of some kind of copy. We're being remade from the inside out. As Paul wrote to the Corinthians, and we all with unveiled faces beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. We're being transformed into the image of Christ. And without these circumstances in life, this wouldn't be happening. This is what God is using. This is His tools. We'll be transformed in such a way that we will be His, his brothers, His sisters. We're, we're not just legally adopted into God's family. We're also getting His family resemblance. We're told that, that when we're born again, we get God's very nature, His DNA. Peter uh, rights to believers become partakers. We become partakers of the divine nature. Through the circumstances of life, God is shaping us into brothers and sisters of Christ. And how does He do this? That's what Paul tells us. Well, He does it with the circumstances. But He's got this plan, and He's been working on it from the beginning of time. And that's here too. He lays out the process by which God conforms His children into His likeness, into the likeness of His Son. He lists five uh, actions, five verbs that describe what God has done. How God causes all things to work together for good. He began in verse 29 with, with foreknew. First, those who he foreknew. Of course, God in his omniscience knows the future. He can see. He knows the past, present, and future perfectly. He sees everyone who's ever lived and ever will live. But that's not what Paul is referring to here. In the Bible, when, we, when we're told God knows someone, it means that he set his love, his affection upon them in a personal way. Therefore, to foreknow means to forelove. Thus God set His love on us back before the beginning of time. Back before uh, you existed, I existed, anyone existed, God foreknew. And for those He foreknew, He also predestined. To predestine means to set a destination for ourselves or someone else. It means to to make a plan ahead of time. It's the Greek word... Got to slow down when I come to these Greek words. Horizdo, if I'm saying it right. Meaning to, you see that you get the word horizon in there. Meaning to, to, de, to determine a horizon and set out for it. God, because of His love for us, has set a destination for us to be with Him in glory and to be conformed to the image of His Son. And He's working that plan out even now. And those who He's predestined, He also called according to His, called according to his purpose. That's those who He's calling. He's calling the ones according to His purpose. These are the ones who've responded to the Gospel. God, through His Word, calls us into relationship with Him through Jesus Christ. And in relationship with God, we're conformed into the image of Christ. And He's called us into that. And those whom He's called, He also justified. To justify it, I mean, we've talked about justification throughout the book of Romans, means to be declared righteous. We are justified by grace through faith in the finished work of Christ. He calls us and then He justifies us. And those who He's justified, He also has glorified. To be glorified means to be fully conformed to the image of Christ. And notice that Paul speaks uh, of our future glorification. We've already seen that it's future glory, right? A couple weeks ago. Right now, we're, we're not fully glorified. But he speaks of it 
in the present tense. Excuse me, in the past tense. He's saying that our future glory is as certain as any other part of this chain. It's so certain that that it might as well already have happened. The links in the chain cannot be broken. God is sovereign and He's working in your life. They, they all go together and they all are accomplished by God. Get that. If you're a believer today, if you've experienced this chain of, of fore, foreknowing and predestination and calling and you've been justified and, and you've actually been glorified now and, and then, if that's you, it's because of God. Before you even existed, it was God who foreknew you. It was God who foreloved you. Don't ask me why. I have no answer. It was was God who predestined you. It was God who called you. And yes, you were the one who responded to the call, but you would never have responded if God had not foreknew and predestined and called you. And it was God through the sacrificial death of His Son, Jesus Christ, who, who justifies you. And it's God who glorifies you. It's God who is right now causing all things to work together for good for you that you might be conformed into the image of His Son. That's the goal, that that glorified. Being conformed fully into the image of Christ where sin is no more. When you're made completely holy, completely righteous, when good has, has the final say in your life and you're fully conformed to the image of Christ. So as we come to the communion table this morning, let's remember all the good that God has done for us and all the bad that God causes to work together for good. As we remember the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ, let us rejoice in the sovereignty of God. God took, uh, this is the greatest example of all, God took the, the greatest evil in human history, the crucifixion and death of His holy and righteous Son at the hands of evil men, and He caused it to work together for good for all those who would trust in Him. Would the ushers and the worship team come forward as I pray? Father God, thank You for this amazing promise, for all it means. Lord, I pray for myself, I pray for my brothers and sisters here that we would trust it, that we would believe it. Lord, when we're tempted to say, why me, Lord, that we would say, oh, God's working. I may not understand it right now, but, but I trust Him. I trust His love. He foreloved me even before I existed, and He loves me now as I exists as I've trusted in Him. Lord, help us to have that attitude, that we would go through life receiving the good and the bad circumstances, knowing that You're at work, You're sovereignly in control, and You're at work conforming us into the image of Your Son. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.